So in the 8th century BC, Judah was under siege because Syria and Israel, the, the northern kingdom, Israel versus Judah, the southern kingdom, uh, Syria, and, Syria and Israel were uh, wanting to um, attack Assyria. They saw in Assyria a threat, and they wanted Judah to be part of this coalition, but Judah would uh, refuse. So they decide, well, uh, let's attack Judah instead, and uh, that we may have a puppet king there that we can bend to our will. So um, King Ahaz, the king of Judah, sends a letter to the king of Assyria, pledging his loyalty. He tells him, I am your servant. Indeed, I am your son. Come, deliver me, he says in this letter. So God sends a prophet, uh, the prophet Isaiah, to speak to King Ahaz in Jerusalem, that, he, that the faith of the king might be strengthened through God's word. And Isaiah finds King Ahaz checking the water supply, as he's preparing for this battle that is sure to come. So God, through the prophet Isaiah, tells Ahaz that he is to ask him for a sign. But Ahaz refuses. He refuses. He cites Deuteronomy 6, saying, "Ah, no, I know that I'm not to put God to the test. He's feigning piety, of course. It's just an excuse. Because God is commanding Ahaz. He is commanding him, ask me for a sign. But Ahaz does not want to believe. He doesn't want to see the sign. He doesn't want to believe. So God says, very well, I will give you the sign anyway. And this sign is to be hope to God's people. It's hope for us, even if it's not ultimately hope for Ahaz. You see, Advent is a season where we pause and look back at the coming of Christ, at his incarnation, but it's also a season where we look forward in hope to his return. But the question we have to ask ourselves is, do we really want to believe? We all enjoy the sights and the sounds and the tastes and the smells of Christmas, but if the thing and the one that they point to actually exists, And if he is who the Bible says he is, that may have profound implications for our lives and for our loyalties, which may have to change. So do we want to believe? Do we want a sign? God promised a sign, and he gave it. And we will see it now. So turn your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 7. I'll be reading... Verses 10 to 14. The the sermon will focus on verse 14 especially, but uh, to continue in this context that I've begun telling already, we'll read from verse 10 uh, all the way through 14. Please listen now to the reading of God's word. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David. Is it too little for you to weary men, that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive 
and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So the focus of this uh, sermon is the focus of this very text and the focus of this verse, of verse 14, and that is Emmanuel, God with us. It has in its definition, in its translation, a noun, a pronoun, and a preposition. And so we're going to look at those three, the noun, the pronoun, and the preposition that are contained in this name. But first let me continue uh, talking a little bit more about this context. We see at the beginning of Isaiah, um, verse 14, in Isaiah 7, uh, that it says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Now Ahaz refuses this sign, but God will give it anyway. The, the term here, uh, the word Lord, in, in verse 14, is not the covenantal name Lord that normally we see uh, when translated to English in, in, four capital, in, in the capital letters, Lord capitalized. Okay, here um, it's, it's Adonai. It's Master. It's the one who is in control. He's the one who's in view here. It's God's sovereignty over the circumstances of his people, over the circumstances in Israel, over the circumstances of, in Jerusalem that is in view here. He's the one that's in control, the one who is sovereign over history. In verse 11, through the prophet Isaiah, God told Ahaz, Ahaz, ask the Lord for a sign. And there, the Lord is in all caps. There, it's the covenantal name of God that was in view. The promise-keeping God. The one who promised to deliver his people. That's the one that was asking um, Ahaz to ask him for a sign. And he says, let it be deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. God's might God's power is what's being emphasized as he comes to Ahaz. Ask of me, he says. Obey my word and your faith will be strengthened. But Ahaz does not want to believe. His heart has other allegiances. He's bent the knee before idols. He belongs to another. So Ahaz twists God's word at this point. He says, I will not put the Lord to the test. Quoting from Deuteronomy 6, verse 16. This is false piety. At his advent, another king, the king of kings, would also quote from Deuteronomy 6, 16. He would quote it rightly when he was tested in the wilderness. And there he did it to demonstrate his allegiance to God. That's not what is going on here. It has twist the meaning. You see, one is not putting God to the test by obeying God's command. God's word is the foundation for the faith of a Christian. It's a sign. It's a sign of God's sovereignty. It's a sign of God's might. It's a sign of God's covenant faithfulness. It's a sign of God's steadfast love. It's a sign of God's commitment, which is as deep as Sheol and as high as heaven, to redeem a people for himself, to redeem sinners like us. Now, dear friend, might your lack of faith be a sign that you have given your heart to another, 
that you are pursuing idols instead of serving the Lord. You see, we have to ask ourselves, is our unbelief, our increasing doubt, is that rooted in our unfaithfulness? Are we refusing to look at the sign? Ahaz does not obey because he doesn't want to obey. But he must obey if he is to find life. And we must obey. We have to turn to God's word. It is in turning to God's word, in turning to the sign that is contained therein, that our faith is strengthened. In verse 14, again at the beginning of it, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. This word, behold, is meant to draw your attention. Something extraordinary is about to be said. Something extraordinary is about to happen. Behold. It's something that will strengthen our faith. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son. This is an extraordinary promise. The virgin shall conceive. Now, many have attempted to minimize that promise, even by altering its meaning. I mean, it's the only way to minimize it. It's the only way that this is not an incredibly significant utterance from the prophet. Behold, a virgin will conceive. So they'll point out that the word that is used here for virgin in the Hebrew is not the word that is normally used for virgin. The word that explicitly means virgin. They use a different, I say I use a different word, Alma, as opposed to Betula. And Alma, they will say, means young maiden of, mar- of marriageable age. A young maiden who is ready to be married, who is of that age. And that's simply what it means. That's simply what Isaiah meant. Behold, a woman who is ready to be married will conceive and bear a son. That's not particularly extraordinary. You mean the kind of thing that happens every day? Is that the promise? Is that the sign that is being given here? No, it's not the sign that is being given here at all. It's exactly what we think. This word, Alma, the word that is used by the prophet Isaiah, is a word that shows up six times in the Bible. We don't count the times that is used as in part of the title for the Psalms. And every time that it's used, it refers to a woman of impeccable repute, to a virgin, to be sure. Every time. Now, the Septuagint, which is the oldest translation of the Hebrew Bible, it's translated into Greek, translated by religious scholars, by Jewish religious scholars in the 3rd century B.C., when they translate this text, they don't hesitate. They use the word in Greek, parthenos, which specifically means virgin. Which is why Matthew in his gospel, when quoting this text, uses the Septuagint and says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Now, if that's what's going to happen, then behold is properly placed at the beginning of this utterance. This is truly extraordinary. Now, why would the prophet use Alma 
instead of Betula. Well, Alma places emphasis on the imminence of the fulfillment. You see, the virgin is already of a marriageable age. That's the urgency behind this text. God is about to do something extraordinary now, which is what he needs to if the kingdom of Judah is to survive. Now, more than 700 years would pass before the sign found ultimate fulfillment when the virgin did, in fact, conceive and give birth to a son. But God's promise is so certain, so inevitable, so sure, that the promise is rightly marked with urgency. And of course, there is an aspect to this promise that is immediate. And it does, in fact, take place. Judah's enemies, Syria and Israel, both are defeated in short order. And that's extraordinary. But the scope of God's promise and the magnificence of his sign was much greater than that. It was inversely proportional to Ahaz's faith. Ahaz's unbelief blinded him to God's sign of deliverance and ultimately barred Ahaz not just from seeing the sign, but from receiving the deliverance enjoined to it. Furthermore, notice that this verse, that this promise from God, this sign from God, uses the definite article. Behold, the virgin. Now this indicates that she is someone specific. A woman, in fact, the woman, whom if we were to go back to Genesis 3.15, God speaks of there. It is a woman that the, whose seed the scriptures have been tracing since God made this promise in Genesis 3.15 that a woman would bear a son, a son that would crush the serpent's head, even as in that act of redemption his heel was bruised. That's the woman. The virgin will conceive. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Now the Lord himself gives the sign to Ahaz because the Lord himself will bring it to pass. God must bring it to pass because God has graciously committed himself to his people and their salvation depends upon God keeping his word. Not even the wicked rulers of this world, those who would forsake God's word and, and rule according to their own convictions, according to their own desires, according to their own ambitions, according to their own lust, not even they can hinder God's promise to deliver his people, not in the times of the prophet Isaiah and not today. Judah was being sieged by its neighbors. Her leader was shaking in fear and had abandoned all hope in God's promise. And at that very moment of great distress, what does God do? He seizes his people's attention and puts before them, sets before them, before their eyes, the promised Messiah. Behold, he says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Dear Christian, when, when you are in distress, when the circumstances of your life cause your faith to waver, you have to behold the sign that, this, that is contained therein. Behold 
this sign. Listen to him. Behold the, the, the beloved son that is here proclaimed. Trust in him and he will deliver you. God promises that he will deliver his people, and he does. So if we read Isaiah 7, 14, the whole verse, it reads like this. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, the fact that the virgin will conceive is an amazing sign. But an even greater sign is the identity of her son. Matthew 1.23 says that this prophecy is fulfilled at the birth of Jesus. That Jesus is the Messiah. That Jesus is the Christ. That Jesus is the child of promise. The focus of this prophecy then is Emmanuel. And the meaning of his name is the title and the focus of this sermon because this name, Emmanuel, contains therein the meaning and purpose of Advent. So let's consider this name and we'll look at the noun, at the pronoun and the preposition that this name um, is defined by. So let's look at first the noun. Emmanuel is God with us. God is the noun. And the question is, well, who is this God that is promised? Who is this God? Well, the shorter catechism, question four, helps us. What is God? It asks. And the answer is, God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. And his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. This description of God uh, that the Westminster divines uh, articulate comes from the scripture, like all, all, the, all the confession, all the standards do. And they would point you to the writings of Moses and of John, uh, to, which say that God is a spirit who no man has seen, a spirit who speaks from the midst of fire. They would point you to the writings of the psalmist and of the author of Kings and of Paul, who say that God is an infinite being who, who neither heaven nor earth can contain. That if you ascend to heaven, he is there. If you make your bed in Sheol, there you will find him. If you take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there his hand shall lead you and his right hand shall hold you. His greatness and judgments are unsearchable, the scriptures say. His ways are beyond finding out, for of him and through him and to him are all things. That's the noun. But that's not all. He's eternal. They would point to the psalmist and to John who says that he is from everlasting to everlasting. Of old he laid the foundations of the earth and gave earth her form, bringing forth the mountains, and that the heavens are the works of his hands. They will perish, yet he will remain. For he is the same yesterday and today and always, whose years have no end. The scriptures say that indeed he is the Alpha and Omega, beginning and end, the one who is and who was and who is to come. That's the noun. But that's not all. He's unchangeable. You can look to the psalmist and to Malachi and to James who write that he is the father of lights in whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. That his counsel stands forever. That the thoughts of his heart are to all generations because he changes not. And because he changes not, we are not consumed. He has made a promise, 
and he is zealous to keep his word. That's the noun. Concerning his being, Moses and Paul write that he is the great I am. He alone is king, eternal, immortal, and wise, and dwells in unapproachable light. That's the noun. What about his wisdom? Paul and the author of Hebrews write that his wisdom is inscrutable. That no detail of any creature is hidden from his sight. Indeed, that all our thoughts and deeds are exposed before him to whom we must give an account. That's the noun. That's God. That's the God who is with us. That's God. Concerning his power, Jeremiah and Matthew would write that with an outstretched arm and with his power, God created the universe. For his might is such that nothing is impossible for him. Concerning his holiness, John and James tells that God alone is holy. The God is so holy that even evil itself cannot tempt him. That's the noun. But there's more. He's the judge of the earth. Moses and the psalmist and Paul would write that he will by no means clear the guilty, that he is the rock whose work is perfect and for whom all ways are justice and truth. They will tell you that there is no iniquity in him. That's the noun. But there's more. They would also tell you that he's good. Psalmist, the psalmist and Paul would say that he, that is God, satisfies his people with good things. That he blesses his children with wonderful works. That God's goodness is so great that by it, God leads men and women to repentance. Yes, even our faith is a gift from this good God. That's the noun in Emmanuel. And concerning truth, the psalmist and the author of Hebrews would tell you that God's truth is absolute, that he is trustworthy, that his truth endures forever, that it is impossible for God to lie, that rather he is full of compassion and he is gracious and he is long-suffering. Plenteous is he in mercy and in truth. Behold the advent of God with us. Behold this God who is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Behold, this is the God who promises redemption. And more than that, this is the God who comes to redeem. Behold the God who is born of the virgin. Behold the God who is given to us. Behold the God who gives himself for us. For us, which brings us to the pronoun, Emmanuel. He is God with us, with us. The greatness of the gift of Christ corresponds to the depth of our need for a Savior. In this text, we see that God comes to us, to us who are sinful, to us who are fallen, to us who are wicked, to us who are rebellious, to us. That God comes to us because only that kind of God can save us. That's why Emmanuel comes. That's why Advent is so important. Look at how the Shorter Catechism describes us in our fallen estate. Westminster Shorter Catechism 18. Wherein consists the sinfulness of that estate wherein two man fell? The sinfulness of that estate wherein two man fell consists in the guilt of Adam's first sin, the want of original righteousness, and the corruption of his whole nature, which is commonly called original sin, together 
with the actual transgressions which proceed from it. And again, it is the scripture that is informing this definition. Paul writes that we are guilty, that the fall brought mankind to an estate of sin and misery, that sin so infected us that, that it brought forth death, that due to Adam's disobedience, we all bear the guilt of sin. We're guilty. Paul also writes that we lack the original righteousness with which God endowed Adam. Not one man is righteous, no, not one. The psalmist with Paul would say that our whole nature is corrupt. In sin we are conceived and we are born in iniquity. That there is no fear of God in our eyes. Instead our minds are set in enmity against God so that we are incapable, incapable of pleasing God on our own. Instead we live by the lusts of the flesh fulfilling its desires. The scriptures say that by nature we are children of wrath. And not only is our nature corrupt, but according to Moses and the psalmist and Matthew and Paul and James, we are also guilty of actual transgression. We are wicked, the scriptures say. We rationalize our corruption and our abominable iniquity by even going so far as denying God's existence. That's how we rationalize it. The scriptures say that every imagination and every thought of our heart is only evil continually. That out of our hearts proceed evil thoughts and uncleanness and drunkenness and envy and hatred and wrath and strife and sedition and murder and thefts and adultery and lasciviousness and fornication and idolatry and lies and blasphemies and heresies. None of us seeks after God. We are all unprofitable in our ways, says the scripture. That our throats are open sepulchers and full of deceit. That the poison of asps is under our lips. That our mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. And yet our feet are swift to shed blood. That destruction and misery are in our way. A way which is foreign to peace. In fact, that our sin brings forth death. Don't you love Advent and the tidings of comfort and joy? But in all seriousness, the importance and significance of Advent is made manifest by the qualitative and moral gap, the chasm that exists between that God and that us that is in Emmanuel. This is sobering. It ought to be. Because of who we are, our Redeemer needs to be who he is. This is why it is critically important that we understand the significance of the preposition in Emmanuel. Emmanuel is God with us. God with us. So how is God with us? How does he minister to us? Given this need, how does he minister to us? Well, again, the Shorter Catechism is helpful. Questions 23 to 26 in particular tell us that Christ is our prophet, our priest, and our king. So how is Christ with us as our prophet? Well, again, apart from Christ, we are corrupt in our nature, guilty before God. In our rebellion against God, we are blind to God's works 
and we are deaf to God's word. So given our corruption and our sin, if we can't see God for who he is as a savior, if we can't hear his word that transforms hearts, we have no hope apart from Christ. So how is he with us as our prophet? Well, according to Luke and to John and to Paul and to Peter and to the author of Hebrews, as our prophet Christ reveals to us by his word and power, by his word and spirit, the will of God for our salvation. We, we aren't able to see him for who he is. We can't see his saving power as we are. But because he is the, pro- the, the prophet who is with us, he reveals himself to us by his word and spirit, his will for our salvation. Because God the Son is with us, he gives us wisdom to identify his will. He gives us discernment to make good decisions. He gives us knowledge to distinguish right from wrong. Because God the Son is with us, we can have communion with God. How is Christ with us as our priest? Well, again, apart from Christ, because of the corruption and guilt of our sin, mankind is estranged from God. He cannot be our blessedness or reward in our state, in our fallen estate. But in the writings of Isaiah and of Luke and of Paul and in Hebrews, we would see that as our priest, Christ offered himself up as a sacrifice in our place to satisfy divine justice and to reconcile us to God. And that now Christ makes continual intercession for us. Because God the Son is with us, God is not our enemy, but our Heavenly Father. We no longer have to live in guilt and shame, but can be confident that our sins are forgiven, that our relationship with God has been restored. We can be sure that God hears our prayers. Indeed, we can be sure that one prays for us, that the Son prays for us. Because God the Son is with us, we can have communion with God. And Christ is with us as a king, as our king. Now again, in our rebellion against the Lord, men and women are slaves to sin, slaves to death. But the writings of the psalmist and of Matthew and of John and of Paul will tell us that as our king, Jesus subdues us to himself, that he rules and defends us, that he restrains and conquers all of his and all of our enemies. In other words, because God the Son is with us, we are no longer slaves to sin, but we joyously serve Christ and his kingdom. We are no longer tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine or by the latest ethical fad, because we now live according to a kingdom ethic that transcends us and produces righteousness and justice and mercy and peace. So we don't have to fear those who would do us harm even. Because not our earthly enemies, not Satan, not even death can take us away from the love of God, from his grip. He is our mighty fortress. He is our refuge and our strength. Because God the Son is with us, we have communion with God. So you see how important this preposition is, with. It makes all the difference, doesn't it? With bridges the gap, it bridges the chasm between the holy God and sinful men and women. Behold, indeed, the virgin shall conceive and give birth to a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. 
Yes, it's true that because God the Son is with us, we have communion with God. But there's another important aspect to this preposition that denotes its importance. And that is that it's also true that because God the Son is with us, no one can escape him. Because God the Son is with us, no one can escape him whether you believe in him or not. So here's the question that you must ask yourself each time that you think of Advent. Each time that you see the Christmas lights in the neighborhood. Each time that you see the Christmas tree with all its ornaments. Each time that you hear Christian music playing. Yes, God the Son is with us. But are you with him? Are you united to him by a spirit-wrought faith? For you is he the prophet whose word in whose word you delight and whose word you obey? Or is he the prophet whose word, whose perfect law you despise? And thus is he the prophet whose word condemns you. For you is he the priest who takes your sin away and covers you with his righteousness? Or is he the priest whose sacrifice you reject, whose mediation you forsake and whose mercy you ignore? For you is he the king whom you faithfully serve, or is he the king whom you war against, the judge whose wrath you have kindled? In Revelation 6, John has a vision of the final battle in which the armies in rebellion against God are utterly defeated. This is an Advent reading. It's a second Advent Then the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us, and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Now which advent applies to you? King Ahaz despised the sign that God gave, but he could not escape it. Emmanuel is God with us, whether we are with him or not. So the Christmas lights have now replaced the ghosts and the goblins and the ghouls on people's yards, and that's a good thing. Christmas trees are up. Christmas songs are playing on the radio. These are the signs of Advent, and they are everywhere. But what do these signs mean to you? And what does this sign mean to you? God gave a sign. And behold, the virgin did conceive and bear a son. And his name is Emmanuel. And he is God with us. Are you with him? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its clarity. We thank you, Father, that in your mercy, in your loving kindness, you have not left mankind in a state of sin and misery, but have provided for us a Redeemer, a Redeemer that has been long awaited, a Redeemer that you promised long ago, and a Redeemer that now has come. 
And that this word that you have given us by your spirit points us to that most marvelous of signs, who is also the most marvelous of saviors. The only mediator between us and you, the only savior of the world. Father, I pray that if there are those here today who have not looked to this sign, that they would do so today. Oh, Father, may they know that it is all grace, that none of us deserves any good gift from you. And yet your mercy is such that while we were yet sinners, you sent your son to die for us, that our sins might be cleansed through his sacrifice, that his righteousness might be imputed to us. Father, if there are those here who don't know that Savior, may today be the day when they bow their knee to Christ as Lord. May they rest in him. May they know that although they cannot do anything to merit your favor, just like we can't do anything of ourselves to merit your favor, your son has done it all, that it is finished. Father, may they turn to him. And for those of us who do know you, Lord, may we be encouraged by this sign. May we be spurred to holiness, that we might live more and more according to this law of this king so that we may enjoy all the benefits that are contained in obedience to you and also, Father, that we may glorify you with our thoughts, with our words, and with our actions. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.